friends, earlier this past week, an Episcopal priest named Broderick Greer wrote this on Twitter. He said, We are in the great 50 days of Easter, 10 days longer than the season of Lent, because feasts are longer than fasts, and God delights in our pleasure. Amen. What a joy it is to remember that God longs to bless and to make all things new on this second Sunday of Easter. Yesterday is the first week, now we're in the second week of Easter. Today's passage is from the book of John. Remember with me that John has two main purposes, first to teach and second to evangelize, to teach us who Jesus is and help us in our discipleship and to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ, to teach and to evangelize. You can find teaching and evangelizing in every book of John's gospel, including the most quoted verse from all of scripture, from John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have life, eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As we approach our text this morning, I invite you to take on a posture of learning as we hear the words of our teacher and to wonder what it looks like to recommit yourself to the good news of the gospel, the good news that Christ did die, but now is risen and will come again. Would you pray with me? God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us acknowledge him as Lord. We ask that you will send your spirit now to give us deeper insight, encouragement, faith, and hope through the proclamation of the gospel. Amen. Friends, hear the word of the Lord beginning in John 20, verse 30, and continuing into chapter 21 through the 14th verse. John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. 
As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a rich, rich passage for us this morning. There are many echoes, canonical echoes, to other scripture passages. This is a water story. It's a fire story. A fishing story. An eating a meal story a miraculous story, and it's a resurrection story. There are some subtle details as well that are perhaps less familiar to us, though interesting to wonder about. There's the symbolism of seven disciples. There is 153 fish. That's oddly specific. And then there's the original Greek stuff that Pastor Stephen gets so excited about, like the different words used for fish throughout this passage. But as I reflect on the good news of the resurrection and wonder about its impact on our lives, I get especially excited that John did not end his gospel outside the empty tomb. Jesus did more than rise from the dead and promise to return. He reappeared to his scared, confused, burnt-out disciples. There was so much about Jesus they didn't understand, and he entrusted them with an incredible call to bring his message of abundant grace and forgiveness into a world craving power, holding grudges, and taking advantage of one another, to a people bearing the wounds of division, indifference, fear, and hatred. Over 2,000 years later, we are still learning who Jesus is and wrestling with our call to share God's message of abundance, blessing, and shalom for all of creation. There are days this call feels clear and days when it does not. Days we pivot between serving God with everything we've got and living as though the resurrection never happened. Sometimes Easter fades into the background because our spirits are tired, carrying the weight of a job we hate or a relationship that consumes our energy, a bad habit, or overwhelming waves of fear or anxiety, uncertainty. Like the disciples, we get scared, confused, and burnt out. The Gospel of John presents Peter 
as the disciple who gets scared, confused, and burnt out. Peter isn't as good as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's not as bad as Judas. He has a sense of call, and it's one he wrestles with throughout the book of John and into the book of Acts. It's Peter who rebukes Jesus. Peter begins to sink when he sees the waves. He doesn't want his feet washed. He cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. He denies Jesus three times and runs to the empty tomb in disbelief. Jesus names him Peter, rebukes him, saves him from drowning, and calls him the rock on which the church will be built. And yet the future rock on which the church will be built has this to say in the face of the resurrection. Gone fishing. After Jesus appears post-resurrection to Mary Magdalene, to the disciples without Thomas, and then again to the disciples with Thomas, after Jesus claims peace over them in John 20 and shows them his hands, shows them his side, he leaves. The narrator doesn't record how much time passes between John 20 and John 21, but we know from the book of Acts that these appearances occurred over a period of about 40 days. Maybe it was eight days or 15 or 36 days before Peter chose to throw in the towel and get back to work. I can identify with Peter and those who went fishing with him. I can visualize the relief the disciples experienced when Jesus appeared to them in the locked room and imagine that relief dissolving into pain or even resentment when Jesus left them again. What had they been doing the past three years? What did it all mean? How were they supposed to take it from here when they didn't know where they were going? Of course Peter returned to what he knew before Jesus called him. Logistically, what choice did he have? Fishing had been his livelihood, and he needed to carry on. But fishing was also familiar to Peter. And after surprising himself by how easy it was to betray Jesus, how simple it was to say the words, no, I'm not one of his disciples, in the warmth of that courtyard fire, Peter needed something predictable, something familiar. At this point in our story, Peter and Jesus had not reconciled. I can identify with the feeling of regret, agony, and shame one carries around when betrayal breaks a human relationship. I wonder what it was like for Peter to receive the words, peace be with you, when Jesus visited the disciples in the locked room. Perhaps he longed for a moment to pull Jesus aside and beg forgiveness. Or maybe he longed to disappear and pretend the last three years hadn't happened. Nevertheless, Peter's gone fishing with some friends. And to make matters worse, they don't catch anything. It's a horrible feeling when all you want is to tune out with something familiar and it becomes a grueling, labor-intensive process. I wonder if Peter resonated with the author of Ecclesiastes who once said this, 
what to keep people get for all the toil and striving with which they labor under the sun. All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. This is a low point for Peter. He's a long way from the hopeful disciple who once said this to Jesus. Peter said this in the sixth chapter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. But now, in our story, Peter's indecently dressed on a fishless boat, which sounds like the beginning of a terrible joke. Our text this morning leaves room for the scared, confused, and burnt out among us. If you, like Peter, are experiencing some regret, anger, lack of clarity, shame, or heartache, if you feel like you're not living up to the expectations that you've let people down or wish you showed up differently, if you are questioning God's claim on your life or God's deep, deep love for you, let me first say that our text this morning affirms that makes you a disciple. You belong here. This call is not rescinded when you can't keep your act together, when you got to go fishing. And that's when they hear the voice of abundant grace hovering over the waters. Friends, haven't you any fish? Throw your net on the right side of the boat. You will find some. To their great amazement, they are unable to hoist the net over the side of the boat because there are so many fish, large fish. They're not strong enough or the boat is not big enough, maybe both. The net is so full, they have no idea how many fish there are. I can see them shouting with delight as proud fishermen do, pulling hard on the net, perhaps losing their grip in all the excitement. As they struggle to haul the net onto the boat, a different voice breaks through the chaos. It's the Lord. Peter freezes, sees Jesus, and drops the net. He quickly wraps his outer garment around himself and jumps in the water to get to Jesus. He doesn't care about the fish or the boat or the others. He is desperate to reach Jesus. The text says they're about 100 yards from shore, which on the Sea of Galilee wasn't that deep, like sprinting across a sandbar on Lake Michigan. When they reach Jesus, he has a coal fire going with fish and bread. As he stood there dripping wet, I imagine there were a million things Peter wanted to say. Jesus, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Jesus, I haven't forgotten. I want to serve you. Jesus, I'm not sure what you're expecting from me. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. But before he can speak, Jesus reminds them to get the fish they've caught. Peter leads the way, dragging the net onto the sand and counting fish as Jesus prepares their breakfast. Despite the astonishing number of fish, the net doesn't break. Jesus invites them to breakfast and serves them bread and fish. This bizarre event makes them want to ask who he is because this whole thing is impossible 
the miracle of the resurrection, his multiple appearances after rising from the dead, and this supernatural catch of fish, but instead they sit and eat together around the fire, enjoying one another's company. Before we read this text together, I asked you to take on a posture of learning and to wonder what it looks like to recommit yourself to the good news of the gospel. As Peter looked out on the water, on the 153 fish spread out on the shore, and into the flames of a different fire, I wonder if he recommitted himself to abundant grace. The type of grace that is as ridiculous as 153 fish split between eight people for breakfast. The type of grace that overflows even to those who doubt and betray. Peter's conviction that God's gift of grace was for Jew and Gentile, that's us, alike, led him to testify to these words at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Peter said this, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. Peter says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as we are. I'm sure there were many moments before Peter's own crucifixion when he remembered sitting on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, eating breakfast with his resurrected Savior. As he navigated the challenges of leading the early church and pursuing his own faith, I imagine he reminded himself again and again that God's abundant grace was for him and for all those he ministered to and with. When I consider what it means for us to recommit ourselves to the good news of the gospel as people who have not seen but believe, I'm inspired by Peter's story, one of fear, confusion, and exhaustion, yes, and one of courage, challenging others not to restrict Christ's prodigal love and grace. I wonder what it looks like for us to have grace with ourselves and with one another as we pursue God's love together, to choose forgiveness, even when it feels like the weaker option. As we leave this place, know that if you've been betrayed, or you're doing the betraying, there is grace, abundant, 153 fish types of grace for all of us. May we rest in that grace today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, pray with me.